Welcome to the 497th episode of the Modern Art Notes podcast. We're almost at 500, aren't we? I'm Tyler Green. The Smithsonian American Art Museum reopens this week, tomorrow on May 14th. And when it reopens, it will present Printing the Revolution, the Rise and Impact of Chicano Graphics, 1965 to now. The exhibition has been much delayed and long awaited, and I'm thrilled to be joined by its curator, E. Carmen Ramos. Ramos was assisted on the exhibition by Claudia Zapata. Later on the show, we'll feature one of the artists from the show, Michael Menchaca. Printing the Revolution reveals how activist Chicano artists from the 1960s forward have engaged in printmaking practices that brought social activism to aesthetics and that helped instigate new political and cultural consciousness among people of Mexican descent in the United States. The absolutely fantastic exhibition catalog, Run Out and Get It and Do It Now, was published by Princeton University Press. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for $38 and up. I'll introduce Michael Menchaca when we get to the second segment on the program. Before I introduce Carmen Ramos, big congratulations to her on her new job, announced just hours before this program airs. She'll soon start as the chief curator at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. If you enjoy the program, please give us a five-star rating and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. E. Carmen Ramos, after the break. Now that the Getty Villa Museum has reopened, get free reservations to explore the villa's blooming gardens, antiquities galleries, and perhaps most exciting of all, the major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins. Featuring work from the Met in New York and the Louvre and Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, Mesopotamia is the most important assemblage of Mesopotamian art ever presented on the West Coast. Visit online or make advance reservations for the villa at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. E. Carmen Ramos, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Let's start by talking about a work that's near the beginning of the show's chronology and then use it to set up the narrative that unfolds between the mid to late 1960s and the 2010s. That work is Malachias Montoya's Yo Soy Chicano. What does it show and what is the history that that work kind of establishes that really, I think, sets up a lot of the show? It is a print that was reprinted, originally printed in 1972 and reprinted in 2013. And it depicts two men in a sort of stylized way. And they're sort of holding or donning broken shackles. And in addition, there's Spanish language text that says, Yo soy Chicano, which is I am Chicano. And this is you know, an important work because of its, you know, the way that it foregrounds this new identity that was emerging in the 1960s and continued to flourish into the 1970s and, and through today, where, you know, Mexican-Americans really were redefining who they were, their relationship to the United States, rejecting notions of the melting pot, notions that, you know, non-white people had to sort of assimilate into, into white American culture. By calling themselves Chicano, they also helped to, you know, reveal the whiteness of American culture. So race is really important in this work. 
obviously you have these sort of you know brown-skinned men here in in this work and it's it's very bold as well in the way that it seeks to engage an audience the artist is consciously using the spanish language directing this to an audience that speaks Spanish, which was another element of, of cultural and political affirmation for people of Mexican descent in the United States. So it's, it's a key work, and it's important also because of the, the life that it led. That's an important part of our exhibition, is we wanted to, to delve into the way that these posters were mobilized. And this work was used to promote a film by the same title, a documentary film, that really explored, you know, this burgeoning political and cultural identity among among Mexican Americans. So it, it's a work that really establishes this notion of engagement as being really central, engaging a non-art world audience, really engaging a broad public audience, you know, a broad audiences of color, Chicano audiences in particular. And then in another way, something that kind of emerges later on in the show is this image is also very masculinist, right? It portrays two men. In Spanish, as you know, words are masculine and feminine. So it adopts the masculine to refer to the entire Chicano community. And in the exhibition, we see works by artists who challenge that, that masculinist perspective, you know, in an effort to continue to redefine what is meant by, by, by Takano, who, who is encompassed in that, in that term. And you know, printmaking during this period played a really critical sort of public role in, in defining that. This was a new consciousness, a new identity, and printmakers were an active part of putting meat and bones on that and, and visualizing it. What, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean historically? So this was a kind of an early manifestation, an early articulation of that. And in the exhibition, there are other works who, that continue to, to define that and redefine that in different ways. Yeah, it's a work that does both aesthetic work and political work and puts that work on shared footing. The history of the Chicanx civil rights movement is often presented by historians as beginning in 1965, the year that Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez instigated a farm workers movement in Kern County, California. Um, listeners to the show probably know more about Kern County than <laughs> any other art world listeners. Kern has a rich history, visual and otherwise. What was the relationship between the farm workers and the artists like? How did it how did it happen? It was a very close and intense relationship that that continues to to this day. Cesar Chavez, in particular, was a very smart man. He was aware of the long uh, relationship between artists and revolutionary movements. He knew a lot about the Mexican Revolution, the period after the Mexican Revolution, during the Mexican Renaissance, when you know many artists were, you know, actively affiliated with political movements, and he sought out these relationships and, and artists were, were drawn to him and to his movement. So from the very beginning of the United Farm Workers, artists were involved. You know, we have an iconic work by Andrew Zermeño Huelga, and Andrew Zermeño was one of the first artists to be affiliated with the United Farm Workers, and the poster was, was created for the union. It was sold, it was used as a, to, you know, to fundraise, to raise consciousness. So it was, artists were involved with, with the, the UFW, artists outside of the UFW created works for it in support of the goals of, you know, raising consciousness about the farm worker plight. Javier Viramontes, for example, and his Boycott Grapes support uh, the Farm Workers Union from 1973 is another work. He created that independent of the union and sent it to them and said, you know, you should sell this. You know, this is an important work. It will help raise consciousness and support for the union. And it was then sold, you know, through the union's newspaper through mail order. So they were really very actively involved in many ways. Other artists, Carlos Almaraz, who was part of Los Four and was also a printmaker, created murals for the UFW. So it was a very, very deep involvement. 
and continued for decades, as evident by Barbara Carrasco's portrait of Dolores Huerta. In these same years, the exhibition foregrounds, co-foregrounds, is that a phrase? How artists addressed the, the Vietnam War. Was that a separate investigation from the UFW work, or did it all run together? I think one of the things that this exhibition reveals, um, especially in the first section of, of the show, is how how many concerns were really all tied into the, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. So artists were obviously very motivated and activated by the UFW but there were many concerns, and the anti-war movement was, was one of them. As you know, many communities of color felt that they were disproportionately represented in the rank and file during the war. So this was a very, very important issue for communities of color. And many works were created in, in, in response to that. There was the land rights movement, you know, especially in you know, New Mexico, that was trying to reclaim lands that were lost during, you know, the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 and the years after that. There was immigration reform. So there was reform against police abuse and police brutality. All of these topics and issues galvanize artists during the early civil rights era and are part of, part of the story that the exhibition tells. There's a great two-page spread in the catalog of works by Rupert Garcia in which Garcia uses quite similar language to address multiple contemporary issues. We'll try to get a, an image of that, that spread for manpodcast.com. Speaking of, of social movements and artists' roles in them and, and impact on them, you write in the catalog that this exhibition demonst demonstrates that Chicanx artists have been in the forefront of what we now call social practice in ways not yet fully understood. In recent years, that's something that contemporary art historians have been examining more. Are there a couple of works in the show that you think are, are, are good examples of social practice beginning to form, beginning to coalesce as, as a focus? You know, one of the collectives that I think really deserves a lot more attention and and you know we have some you know recent books by Ella Diaz that really you know focus on the Royal Chicano Air Force and I think to me they are a key collective that really practice social practice art and they were a multifaceted group that included visual artists and poets but they were also these masters of of staging these elaborate events you know, in, in Sacramento, you know, during these moments of, of gentrification, you know, so their posters were used to kind of publicize these events. And they also, you know, created a lot of their posters in a, in a collective context, in workshops with, with community members that was all based on engagement. And, you know, these events that they organized really bought in, you know, medical, you know, doctors and, and, and psychologists, and they were really interested in working with people, the whole the community, in this very kind of multifaceted way. So all these notions of self-care that we're talking about, that was essential to their work in thinking about, you know, the whole community. So for me, I think the Royal Chicano Air Force is, is really paradigmatic of of this approach of, of engaging community members in, in a very deep, in a deep way that has aesthetic dimensions, but also has these dimensions that are connected to daily life. It's also a really good example of artists working in collective or, or together, something that we see both throughout this show something artists who, who I think aren't in the show, ASCO I don't think is in the show, did in, in, in the 70s and thereafter, and that even continues into the present, such as in the Dignidad Rebelde partnership of Melanie Cervantes and Jesus Baratha, although I guess they're in partnership in more than just art. <laughs> yes. We do have a work by Patsy Valdez, though, in the show. She is a printmaker, and she is part of, she's a member of ASCO. That's right. You mentioned whiteness a moment ago, and there are a substantial number of works in the show that address American and America's 
plural, not possessive, history in ways that pointedly decenter whiteness in the story of, of these places. Before we get to a couple of those, do you think that the ways in which the artists in the show reorient American history or America's history has been consistent since since the 65 open of the show, or do we see that changing across the timeline the show covers? I think it is probably a little bit both. I mean, there are ebbs and flows. There are different moments, different historical periods that emerge, obviously because this is a movement that is unfolding as history is unfolding. So in the 1960s and into the 1970s, Cuba, Cuban history, the galvanizing sort of impact of the Cuban revolution was hugely important. The rise of third world liberation was deeply significant for Chicanx artists and their cross-cultural collaborators, in part because they saw themselves as part of that movement here in the United States. They, they, were, they were connected to countries that were considered third world countries. So you, at, at that point, you, you definitely see those connections. And then later on, as the sort of makeup of Latinx communities shifted with immigration, immigration shifts, you see this real turn to Central American politics in the, in the late 70s and definitely in the, in the 1980s. And then you also see this sort of development unfolding of the ways in which Chicanx artists looked at black politics as well. You know, initially it was viewed as a, as, as a very kind of local thing. And you see works, for example, like Malakias Montoya's George Jackson Lives that references, you know, the, the prison industrial complex in the United States. So that's a, a very kind of more local thing. And then you also see artists engaging themes around the push against apartheid, the anti-apartheid movement. So definitely you do see this sort of shift of, these historical lenses to different moments in time and and different periods that were gaining our attention, but also the ways in which these artists were helping frame our attention. I mean, some of these works about South Africa, for example, the work of Juan Fuentes are a kind of really early, are early in respect to sort of the divestment from South Africa movement. So these artists were really raising these issues for an American public in, in very early times and sort of in, in, in innovative ways. So I think you do see these shifts over time in the exhibition. Fuentes also makes work that addresses Palestinian liberation and points to how the show presents artists working in coalition across groups and geographies, if you will, so not just American geographies. A really good example of that might be Ricardo Favela's Centennial Means 500 Years of Genocide. It brings together some of the things we've already discussed and, and adds this one. What does that work show? And what was it trying to do off the wall, if you will? That work is really very important. And one of the reasons I've been thinking about that work a lot, because at the Smithsonian, we've been talking about the upcoming 250th anniversary of 1776. And in 1976, there was, you know, the United States was celebrating its bicentennial. And for many artists of color, this was, 1776 was not a period of freedom, <laughs> right? So many artists were really looking at this at this celebration as what is being celebrated. You know, after many of these communities were coming out of, you know, the 60s when the United States government was infiltrating activist groups through programs like COINTELPRO, you know, there, there was not a lot to celebrate. So this work is, is a very critical work at looking at this key moment, milestone moment in American history, but looking at it through sort of brown eyes, if you will, through, through brown and indigenous eyes. And so I think this, this work really speaks to this sense of, of solidarity that is a big part of the Chicano movement. The Chicano movement was a movement for equal rights in the, the United States, but it was part of 
this global anti-colonial movement as well. And those connections really manifested in a lot of the solidarity networks that were created through printmaking and through these shared efforts to bring these these suppressed histories, suppressed histories to light. So it's a really powerful work that I've also been thinking about because of what's been happening over the past year in museums and this desire to sort of rethink what we do as institutions and how we present American history. And many of the works in, in this in this show really address this American history that has been suppressed in the sort of established way that we tell the story of this nation. Another work that plays with whiteness is Luis Jimenez's Howl from, from 1977. How does Jimenez's Howl remake what had been a white standard, a culturally constructed white standard? I think that Jimenez's work is also very much about, about history and it's actually Howell is this, that print is the first Chicano print to enter our collection. So it's special in many ways. And the museum has also had a long and special relationship with Luis when he was alive. And that work really is about this icon of the coyote that has been essential to indigenous communities on both sides of the border for millennia. Right? So it has this sort of deep resonance to the geography that we now call the Southwest that is pre the United States. And I think as a Chicano artist who was from that part of North America, you know, he was, you know, very insistent on trying to disrupt notions of a border of, of, of the border between these two places and sort of erase that border you know, by emphasizing this icon that is pre-United States, that is indigenous. So in that way, he's really emphasizing the brownness of the United States in our history and in a very deep historical way. Speaking of the coyote, coyotes in various forms and in various references and various historical jumping off points run throughout the show. What are some of the ways in which we see artists presenting coyotes and who and what they are in different contexts? I think the work of Michael Menchaca is also relevant here. He has come of age at a different moment in time from the artist from the 19. 60s, or who came of age in the 1960s, like Luis Jimenez. You know, when he came of age at a time, you know, in Texas when the cartel wars were really a kind of a strong historical force, and he's created a whole body of work that really animates that history in, in, in a visual way that both connects to the whole history of Mesoamerican codices. And so a lot of his work is really trying to take these ideas that emerged in Mesoamerican art and sort of translate them in, in a way that tells uh, contemporary histories. And the coyote features in his work in the context of some of our, you know, recent history, recent history of, of undocumented migration that was really pushed due to the cartel wars that, you know, are also very connected to the sort of the long-term impact of U.S. intervention in, in Central America and the sort of repercussions of that. Speaking of history, because I can't resist, what was, where was Aztlan and how have artists represented it? So Aztlan is the mythical homeland of the Aztecs that, according to their cosmology, was located somewhere in the Southwest. And Aslan was represented in an Aztec art. And for Chicanos, Aslan becomes a, a kind of a geographic claim to this territory in, in North America, right? That was north of Mexico, of what we now know as, as Mexico. And it's, it's a very important concept that helps reshift the way that we think about migration, immigration, because this land in North America, especially in the Southwest, 
was indigenous land. It still is indigenous land. It was, you know, connected to many indigenous cultures throughout the Southwest that cover now Mexico and, and the United States. So Aslan is this very powerful way of kind of reshifting our thinking of who is native in this country and who is who has always been here. And it is sort of appears in the exhibition in a number of ways. One of my favorite is a print by uh, Richard Duardo that spells the word Aslan in this lettering that evokes one time, at, you know, at the same time, sort of graffiti, but also sort of the kind of signage that you might see on a vintage lowrider, so sort of car signage. And this work, you know, he's sort of playing with these notions of this ancient concept that could also relate to how Chicano culture is really, through lowriders and through graffiti, is really sort of inhabiting this space that was connected to these ancient indigenous cultures from which Chicanos claim descent. There's a redefining of nationality within that work, too. It's red, white, and blue. We'll have an image, of course, on, on manpodcast.com. Well, speaking of, speaking of cars, throughout the show... You point to ways in which Chicanx artists play a role in defining community, including in imagining utopian, sometimes futuristic worlds in which Chicano culture is primary and central. One example might be uh, from 1986, Gilbert Magu Lujan's screen print called Crossing Turtle Island. Are there links between Afrofuturism, which is rising to prominence in roughly this period, and the kind of utopian futurism we see Chicanx artists portraying in, in works like Luhans? I think there are links. I can't point to exactly a link in the sense of, you know, Gilbert Magulujan was speaking to ex-artists, right? That they were exchanging ideas uh, in that way. But I think that artists starting, you know, in this period were really thinking of new ways to, to, visualize, to visualize a future. This was a key work in my rethinking a section of the show, which I call A New Chicano World. And I was really drawn by how, and other scholars have you know, talked about this, like Karen Marie Davalos, for example, who's written about uh, Magu's work, is that he sort of creates this world in this print that's, that's pre-conquest. Right. It's as if the conquest never happened. And I think many, many artists were interested in not only sort of responding to oppression, but imagining a world where that didn't exist. And also imagining a world where brown and black cultures are, are central, right, are central and are, are the dominant culture. Right? And, and that's what, what you see in this print. And in the work of a lot of artists in, in, that I've gathered in that section that really are trying to, in various ways, to make Chicano culture, not a marginal culture, right, but saying this is, this is the focus of, of our vision, this is a culture that is on par with other cultures, this, this is a culture that is important, right? And we're going to use this frame of reference to see the world. There's another artist, Mel Casas, who's, who's a painter, who he has this quote that says, brown eyes has, have visions too, right? And so these, this is the, a view of the world through brown eyes. And there are other ways that artists you know, have done that. You know, many artists in the show were really shaped by the calendars that were given away at local stores in their neighborhood, um, many of which were illustrated by paintings, reproductions of paintings by Jesus Alguera, who was a Mexican artist who created these sort of romantic classicizing scenes of Mesoamerica, of Mesoamerican myths. And that was their first exposure to, to art in many cases. And when they decided to create art through that really engaged their their lived reality and experiences as Chicano people, they thought of this art form, right, this calendar format, and really redefined it in very unique ways. We have one print in the show 
by Max Garcia and Luis Gonzalez that comes from a whole portfolio devoted to food. It was a way of kind of archiving and documenting visual traditions, important eateries, and the experiences of people, of Mexican people, Mexican-American people, Chicanx people, with respect to foodways and, and cultures. The print that we have on view in the exhibition is about food stamps in the 1970s uh, during the Ford administration and how there was a, a debate and there was this effort to cut back on, on the food stamp program. So the, this work is kind of like protesting that. There's an image that it's kind of a, overlay, a series of overlaid images that depict the Last Supper as well as some of the graphics that were actually printed on food stamps because in the 1970s, food stamps were actually bills, right? Uh, so they had all this sort of iconography. So the image sort of merges those those two. That's a great example of the art of artists in the show playing with art history in in ways that are not trying to be sly. <laughs> there are a couple of examples of that I wanted to point to. And if one particularly catches your ear, feel free to jump off from it. There's Elizabeth Sisko, Lewis Hawk, and David Avalos's Welcome to America's Finest Tourist Plantation from 1988, which jumps off from Barbara Kruger. There is Enrique Chagoya's The Ghost of Liberty 2004, which I wanted to, to cite not just because of its address of Philip Guston, but because of how you present it in, in the catalog. And I'm derelict in not having cited the catalog more here. It's an extraordinary document. So actually, why don't I stop there for a second? How does how does Chagoya address Gustin, and how do you show it in the catalog in a way that is true to the work and exciting for the bookholder? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you know that Enrique Chagoya is really a master of collage in a way, right? Um, and he is he delves into art history, he delves into popular culture, and creates these mashups. Right, uh, of time and space that really help us see uh, history in, in, a, in a whole you know, different way. And the work that we have on view is The Ghost of Liberty from 2004. And it was uh, created, obviously, in the years after 9-11, when there was a lot of you know, debate about the actions of, of George Bush and his administration during the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, this kind of parallels the way Gustin saw, you know, Nixon and all of his escapades during, uh, during his administration. And it's an example of a work that really lets us as a viewer, right, decipher it. It's, it's, it's not a linear work in, in any stretch of the imagination. Chagoya works in a way that references the, the history of Mesoamerican codices, which are these accordion-style books that were not read from left to right, but were read from right to left. And, you know, he presents in this, in this beautiful, uh, irregular-shaped codice that we have presented in the middle of the catalog in a way that you could unfold and really see it in, in its full entirety. And he just throws out all of these different references that we have to decipher. So there's, you know, an image of the Lone Ranger, of Tonto, you know, so it kind of raises the specter of, of the media, of, you know, stereotypes and how big stereotypes were, you know, during this moment and how 9-11 really transformed the lives of, of many people in the United States of, you know, Muslim Americans, of immigrants, people of color. So I think one of the things that I love about, about this work, and is a, it's a bit different than a lot of, of other works in the exhibition that, that school us in history in, in much more direct ways, is that this work really puts the viewer at the center of having to navigate uh, his telling of history. There are a bunch of accordion-like unfoldings in, in the catalog. It is uh, when you read it, don't sit next to somebody. You'll need the space. <laughs> 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 I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about 
how you constructed this show and how constructing this show was intentionally coincident with constructing a collection. All of the works in the exhibition are from Sam's collection. I think the, I could be wrong on this, but I think the earliest acquisition is from 1995, but a substantial majority of the works have been acquired in the last couple of years. Could you kind of detail a little bit how you worked on the exhibition coincident with working on your own collection, adding to your own collection? The, the origin of this exhibition really was me thinking about an important gift that we received in 1995 by the very important scholar, Tomas Iberafausto. Let, let me jump in for just a second. His papers are at the Archives of American Art. Many of them are online, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Yes, and he actually gave his papers and this gift to us of 60 civil rights era posters at the same time. And he really intended this gift in an activist way. You know, in fact, I, I, you know, I refer to him and the other donors in the show as sort of activist collectors and activist donors, because when he gave this work to us, he intended it to you know, really to force the museum and, and to, to sort of grapple with the place of Chicanx art within the history of, of American art, within the history of the art of the United States. So it was really a very deliberate act of trying to shift the narrative, our narrative as an institution. And we have used this collection since the 90s in various ways. I organized a show in 2013 where we presented a lot of works from this gift we hadn't really focused on it. And so I, I knew that I wanted to do something with this collection, but I knew that it was a time capsule, largely. It was a, it was, it was a body of work that was from largely from the 1960s and, and 70s. And you know, I wanted to bring our collection up to date and to really challenge ideas that Chicanics printmaking was a fossilized thing of the past, and that's not what I saw. The more I, I dug into the field, it really became very clear that this movement that started in the 1960s was significant, was innovative, and was still thriving. It was still thriving today and changing. So it really became an effort to tell the true and much broader history of the Chicanx graphic movement. And another thing that, that I learned through this process of, of collecting is how influential this movement is. You know, that's one of the reasons why we have the word impact in the title and why we present the work of non-Chicanx artists in the show is that this network of print centers, of artists, that was created support, supported artists from other communities. So there's work by Nancy Holm, who was an Asian American artist. There's work by Josh Sanzis, who is an Italian American artist from Massachusetts, who ended up in in the Bay Area. There are works by a Dominican American artist who created collectives or who created a collective that was inspired by the history of Chicano graphics. So, you know, in a lot of my projects, I often try to bust this bubble that has been placed around Chicanx and, and Latinx art, where they're only speaking to each other. And I really wanted to challenge this idea and to really claim and, and sort of announce the, the influential nature of, of this movement. So the acquisition program was really about trying to have a collection that was able to tell this important history. And by building the collection, of course, you know, it's going to transform what we do in the future. When we started this project, we had, I think it was around 120 some odd Chicano prints. We now have, have over 500 from different, you know, historical moments. So I think that this is going to really change the stories that we can tell at our institution. And that's what we, what we plan to do in the coming years. Largest collection on the East Coast, I think. Absolutely, yeah. At a museum. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Carmen Ramos, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been great talking to you. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents 
Celebrating Tony Conrad, a two-day online music festival on May 27th and 28th from 4 to 8 p.m. Central. As a pioneer of both drone music and structural film, Conrad is arguably one of the most important artists in regard to sound art and experimental music. This festival is a way to keep Conrad's legacy alive, while showcasing artists who introduced us to Conrad as a musician, artists he collaborated with, and friends he inspired during his life. Presented in partnership with Front Porch Productions, the festival includes more than 10 performances honoring the late artist's collaborations with musicians from the United States, Japan, and various European cities, and including Tony Baloney, M.V. Carbon, Angerhard Davies, Arnold Dreblatt, David Grubbs, K.G. Hino, with Ted Conrad's visuals, Larry Seven, Jim O'Rourke, Charlemagne Palestine, John Hervé Perrone of Faust, Jennifer Walsh, and C. Spencer Yeh. The program will be introduced by Rachel Adams, Bemis Center Chief Curator and Director of Programs. Celebrating Tony Conrad is presented as a virtual at low-end performance as part of Bemis Center's Sound Art and Experimental Music Program. Launched in 2019 with lead support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, this one-of-a-kind program provides unique resources to support the research, creation, and presentation of new work by artists working in sound, composition, voice, and experimental forms of music and low-end, a live music venue. Low-end features free live shows by local, national, and international sound artists, composers, and experimental musicians. These performances aim to not only build new audiences and a greater appreciation for non-traditional forms of sound, but also to liberate artists, to take risks, and to present truly avant-garde work. Tickets not required. Stream at youtube.com slash Center. Welcome back. My second guest, Michael Menchaca, isn't only in printing The Revolution. He's also included in Estamos Bien, La Triennial 2021, which is on view in New York through September 6th at El Museo del Barrio. The exhibition was curated by Rodrigo Mora, Susanna V. Temkin, and Elia Alba. Menchaca is also presently in residence at ArtPace San Antonio. Menchaca uses both print and new media to disrupt racist narratives that target Black and Indigenous people by creating anti-colonial, anti-racist, and anti-capitalist scenes. He's had solo exhibitions at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, the Lawndale Art Center in Houston, and the McNay in San Antonio. His recent group show credits include the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Davis Museum at Wellesley College. Michael Menchaca, welcome to the Modern Art News Podcast. Thanks for having me. On the first half of the program, we heard Carmen Ramos talk about some of the reasons printmaking has interested Latinx artists over the last half century. And I don't want to let the reasons she offers for the field to stand for you simply because you're, you're the artist on the show. So what attracted you to printmaking? When I was an undergrad at Texas State, which was about 11 years ago, I felt a, a sense of cultural alienation from my upbringing being in San Antonio, growing up in a majority of Latino community and, and population. And so going to school in a different racial dynamic, you know, I felt minoritized by my peers and some professors on campus. And that instilled in me a racial awakening and a realization of, of cultural alienation that I started to relate to migration and, and narratives of migration. So I started to feel like I felt compelled to express this alienation through printmaking, but in a digital process that separated previous iterations of Mexican-American identity in printmaking. You know, I wanted to, to use a digital means of expressing that, that sense of cultural alienation. And so I have a background in graphic design, and I wanted to translate that process of drawing digitally into creating stencils for screen prints. But I wanted to have that sensibility that this was made on a computer because I felt that's what my upbringing would have to bring to the conversation of uh, identity and like being raised during like Cold War era slash War on Drugs era video games as the arcade, which always had violent imagery and, and very hyper-nationalistic themes against people of color by white protagonist characters. So I wanted to infuse that kind of visual language into the mix. That's kind of a long-winded answer to that question. But any, any, anybody who has played video games in the last 50 years, <laughs> I guess they've been around a while now, 
recognizes their presence in your work, either in work that specifically borrows from video game, air quotes, landscapes, or the iconography of video games, like the way in some prints you represent water. Another way in which you have migrated your graphic design experience and interest, and, and indeed, I think, interest in the legibility of graphic design into your work is through your use of Mesoamerican deities, figures, pattern concepts. Is that even a phrase? But you're migrating forms informed by the Mesoamerican into contemporary contexts. What about them interests you and, and why was reaching into an historical past interesting to you, even as you were also interested in video games? So I discovered the codices at the same time when I was an undergrad, you know, feeling that sense of cultural alienation. And just going through the library at Texas State, I found a book on, I was initially looking for hieroglyphics and different ancient languages that depicted space and important narratives in a culture through pictographs and, you know, flat, like linear narratives. And when I discovered that there was uh, an ancient Mesoamerican parallel to Egyptian hieroglyphs, I really felt that that source could express the geospatial history of colonization in the Americas and express that cultural alienation that I felt being brought up in San Antonio, Texas, in a way that was different from other printmakers, but not just printmakers, but artists in general, weren't using the the source of ancient Mesoamerican codices digitally or, or rendering them as prints and, and later on, you know, in my practice as animations in a way that was like really true to the source material and really like visually successfully emulated the line widths and the repetition of forms and the codification of icons and all these layers of coded symbolism. It was really something I wanted to create for myself, for my own experience, to express this new racial awakening and, and the sense of racial racialization that I felt growing up in a hyper-policed colonial location, being that San Antonio is and has historically been a, a military site since its inception. So, you know, just feeling constantly policed and surveilled in this community really gives me the sense of of not having freedom and the ability to to move around in spaces without being tracked and monitored. And so that became important to the work is to express other narratives of black and brown bodies moving around through space and, and trying to fulfill a sense of freedom for themselves and their families. You know, one work that might bring together some of the things we've talked about is a 2011 print in the show at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And it represents water, which which we mentioned a moment ago, and questions of freedom, access, borders. It's called Cuando el Rio Sueña Gatos Lleva. Am I, am I guessing right that that's kind of an early manifestation and joining of a lot of the things we've been talking about? Yes. That print in particular, I was trying to reiterate or, or visualize dichos or like common sayings in like Mexican-American households. You know, there are these like phrases that uh, are meant to have like a moral attached to them. And, and so that one is riffing off of like when the river makes a sound, you know, there's something more to it than you think or, or something along the lines. I might be butchering that, but you know, I wanted to play with Dichos and then recontextualize them to talk about migration with felines specifically, because as you see in the work, I use felines to represent the mestizaje and the struggle, the constant struggle of trying to have the sense or own the sense of independence. And yeah, that, that print, I use this illusion of having the surface of the print, the sheet of paper, as if the, the cats are receding into the page itself through the, the stylized waves. And I think in that print, you see a potential for motion or animation, being that some of the figures are repeated throughout the space of the, the print. And 
covered and you know in different capacities they're submerged in the water and so it really has people looking around you know in in like an infinite loop of simultaneous drowning and swimming and struggle yeah the way you've made the print moves the eye from figure is figure the word when we're not talking about human figures <laughs> i use the word figure and maybe that's the vegan in me is uh is really characterizing all mammals all life forms as as living creatures yeah the eye the eye moves around in a way that leads the eye to think think it can find find movement so speaking also of this juncture of your discovery of the relationship between Mesoamerican forms and Egyptian forms, hieroglyphs, in 2013, you made a print called Index of Figural Archetypes and Recurring Pattern Ornamentation. It's a really smart print that references seriality without itself really being serial. What did that print allow you to do? And was that print a foundation for the way you maybe thought about installation and the decorative thereafter? So that print was made my first semester at RISD during my MFA printmaking. And I had, for the first time in my practice, access to a digital printer, like a large format Epson printer. So I wanted to print my index of patterns and figures on a traditional printmaking paper, like Reeves, BFK, or, or other you know white sheets of paper, which I hadn't yet printed on or felt like was, uh, you know, as, as like a, a young printmaker, I wanted to challenge conventions of printmaking. So I, I wasn't printing on like white ragged cut sheets of paper. I wanted to print on French or well, the French paper company, colorful substrates that they offer on their website. So at that point at RISD, having access to new facilities, I wanted to catalog what I had created at that point. And the response I got from like studio visits and from professors during critique at that time was that this body of work or this these images could very well be installed on an entire wall if they were created out of wood or some other like sculptural form. Like if they were objects on a wall, this could be an installation. And I, I heard that from several different people and and it really got me thinking that think about exhibition design in that sense so it wasn't until that print was made that i started thinking about indexing in physical spaces we've been talking about works mostly that you made in the first couple years of your career let's zoom forward a bit to the last couple years and to a work called enter the border enter the border around seven which migrates visual and social constructions from video games, some of which we've, we've talked about, into an address of present-day migration. What about reconstructing the landscape as represented in a video game as being simultaneously artificial and dangerous interested you? I mean, there's a lot I could say about that. These are really, these are really visually dense, coloristically loud works. So when you say there's a lot to say, that's both a figure of speech and is literal to what's happening in the print. <laughs> yeah. So I, I look at like historical geographies uh, tied to racialized threats. So the border is a big signifier of that. And, and being based in San Antonio and, and being raised here, there's always this sense that the racialized threat is coming to take over your community. And that's another way of saying that the Mexican-American War never ended in Texas. And from my experience, it's, it's still in San Antonio, Texas. And so if that's an ongoing war that's happening, if, if not physically, it, it's psychologically and psychically it's happening internally in, in the Mexican-American community and in other communities of color. We're being told these narratives of, of fearing racialized threats and so we start to surveil from the bottom up, like we start to surveil each other, see each other as threats. People that look like me, like brown skin, you start to feel like, yeah, like an increased sense of fear. And and so we have to police or turn to the police or some sort of military, colonial, imperialistic power to contain the the threat. And with that print, I wanted to visualize this threat or the, that sense of geography of, of threat uh, being the border or the way it's talked about 
are sold to to militarized agencies as like this battle royale video game level that's like a presented like a platformer style like final fight shinobi bad dudes double dragon you name it like that era of propaganda that was highly influencing me at the time to to fight off racialized threats in the video game format but in this context the protagonist is brown felines this race of felines that are just trying to defend themselves and enter the border and fight off the infinite amount of, of border dogs and uh, high-tech cyborgs that Homeland Security throws at them. And so you have ICE agents and by a quadruped canines, biped canines, really attacking, uh, by all means, this family of cats. And I forget if round seven is the blue back. I think it is the earlier iteration. You have less of uh, like an apocalyptic scene. You have a coyote on the left that's represented as like a semi-truck that's dropping off the the characters or protagonists, in this case, the, the game player on the left side of the composition. And that's sort of a nod to arcade games where they introduce the scene before you start gameplay is you'll have like this little animation of dropping off the character in on a site or the new stage and then the gameplay begins and, and then the action begins and so just composing a print in in that sense really fulfilled for me that that influence of a video game design in this like printed format and it carries itself over you know work after work in in the enter the border series in a way that never loses its cleverness its intelligence and extending visual you know not jokes but visual references across the series so in that first one you just mentioned in 11 image of the sunman podcast.com the semi is rolling over a cat it's flattening the cat and then the cat i don't think the cat is in, in in every print in the series but the cat comes back if you will oh god that came out the wrong you know what i mean <laughs> right yeah the felines are always present and that's intentional because that's that's the way that i've chosen to characterize the mestizaje the the cultural mixture of the new world the race spawned or the races spawned after the european invasion and you know that misogynation how it became classified or how through taxonomical means was given value through the castas and how whiteness was given priority and, and seen as more socially valuable and darker skin and African indigenous DNA was seen as and is still seen as like more threatening and less socially valuable. The feline encompasses all of that and and there's different shades or like different characteristics from other species that represent that misogynation. But, you know, the audience doesn't have to know all that, but that's where I'm coming from with, with the, the creation of the works. I think viewers get a sense of that research. And so I think they'll appreciate it. Yeah, like I was intuitively getting at, even if I phrased it clumsily, you know, the cats have nine lives and keep coming back and they keep coming back across the Enter the Border works. You mentioned whiteness in the American state and you literally represent the American federal state as white throughout the work. So the helicopters, for example, or the artillery bots are white. One last thing on this series of works, they're all super dense. They're all super dense, packed with imagery and color and color bumping up against shape and dense, dense, dense. Is the density in these works a metaphor for the ubiquity of fear of the threat, the, the the ongoing threat, both from ICE and in, in in contemporary America, but also the threat that persists from America's 19th century imperialism. Yeah, I think the density does speak to those layers of racialization and and discrimination in everyday life. And I think they also they, they mostly speak to the way that I process information and just being a person that's more prone to absorbing visual information fast. I think just by maybe playing too many video games growing up and, and then later on being somewhat active on social media and then rejecting that 
uh, eventually. But it, I think it just speaks to how modernism can be characterized through remote sensing, like sensing at a distance, and how, especially during the pandemic this past year, has shown us that remote sensing is the only way that we've been able to experience artworks and other creative industries, right? And yeah, so I think it's just, it's my way of processing information is is to have like surface meaning and metaphorical meaning in one icon, one like abstracted patterny image or icon symbol that, that speaks to cultural alienation and specifically the Tex-Mex lived experience, feeling policed and, and surveilled on a daily basis. And so I think if that translates to density, then that's the most appropriate way that I've found to express that, that sense of, of constant negotiation between state policing and uh, individual liberties. I, I think it's unmissable from, from, from the works. Let's kind of speed into the present and talk about your installation in the El Museo del Barrio Triennial, A Cage Without Borders. We will embed in the show page at manpodcast.com a video that shows what your installation looks like and how it's installed. But for the purposes of audio here, if I describe the installation as maximal, as melding the graphic and and graphic design with the decorative, because your work covers the entire wall as wallpaper might, with video and with your interest in video and as extending your interest in video games and sound. Am I throwing enough things up against the wall to to, to be getting it about right? <laughs> yeah, all that is in there. All that and, is in there. And more. And more, yeah. So what the work is addressing is artificial intelligence and how it maybe and probably is, uh, we should presume is, being used in the context of the federal state acting on people who are the most vulnerable to the power of the federal state. And as I've seen the piece digitally, I've come to think of it as a kind of specific application of the mostly abstract questions that Trevor Paglin reveals and asks. So you're kind of taking his observations and his questions, joining them, and then pointing specifically to how those broad questions of his apply to actual human beings. Is that, is that, am I getting your range of interests close to right? <laughs> I will add some other references that really inform this piece. Ruha Benjamin, she has this book titled Race After Technology. That's really informed my practice over the last year. Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. Joy Boilamwini, who's at Algorithmic Justice League. Timnit Gebru's work on uh, ethical AI at Google and then was let go recently by Google or fired, I should say, not let go. Shalini Kantaya, who directed Coded Bias, which is an amazing documentary on AI and, and how it's being used to subvert and oppress uh, communities of color. So I'm looking at this new line of research of AI being used by military and law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and intelligence agencies like the CIA and FBI to monitor and, yeah, just track bodies of color and press them or what they call the the tech-to-prison pipeline to guarantee the lower status of people of color in the the U.S. caste system. So this this new technology and the language of innovation and science is being used to sell surveillance products. And this is like a new industry that, that is flourishing to keep people of color lower or to ensure the place of people in color in the U.S. caste system is subordinated, that they don't rise up and achieve a, a lot of the, the social and civil liberties that, that are guaranteed in the Constitution. And and so, yeah, this is a new civil rights crisis, and the work is, you know, I've written about this in a transcript that is the audio portion of the video. And so this is like a transcript that's comprised of notes from lectures that I've attended uh, over the past year. Some are, some are quotes directly from books 
and essays on the subject of AI and and not just AI, but uh, other industries that perpetuate settler colonialism and racial inequality. And it, it's just presenting these things as like an advertisement you see on social media or like a commercial social media platform. So I wanted to emulate that visual vocabulary that contemporary online users are bombarded with in order to make this information as palatable as possible, as consumer-friendly as possible. And yet it's so anti-capitalist in content that it's it's a really weird juxtaposition of, of imagery. And, and so that was the intention is to have that kind of overwhelming paranoia be presented as this like pastiche of video game imagery with social media advertisement graphics with audio that that's informative about u.s intelligence agencies you know over overwhelming communities of color into what what is called or referred to as a carceral web like this invisible digital architecture that one cannot escape and one has to participate in if they are to function in everyday society and so it's just a, a way for me to to transition the work from being more specific about my identity as um, Mexican-American and Chicano, Chicanx artist, to being an artist with that identity, but thinking about the new industrial revolution and the, the civil rights that are being threatened by these new technologies that are really using standard colonial infrastructures. So it's, it's, it's no different from what Columbus did, if you compare it to what Google did to the internet and how they've capitalized on click-through rate, it's just the same formula applied to digital real estate. And now human attention, human behavior is no longer autonomous as they would like it. And so if one is to get rid of themselves of being commercially swayed in one direction or politically swayed in another direction, one has to resist and refuse these so-called free services that are provided to in engage and communicate with each other, to surveil one another from below. As Simone Brown refers to this type of surveillance from the bottom up as surveillance uh, rather than surveilling each other from the top bottom. And yeah, so Simone Brown, Dark Matter, is another reference in, in this work, but you know, this is this is a whole new chapter for the work. And in another way, it's like an obvious extension of colonial history of the the world. You know, globalization, this is the new iteration of it. We will have links to the books and documentaries you just mentioned on the show page at manpodcast.com. As listeners can see on the video at the show page, it's installed at El Museo del Barrio so that you can't really be more than like six feet away from the wall. The installation forces you to be as in physical contact with the work as, um, as, as, as could safely be, which is pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. Well, Michael Machaca, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.